0: This is a bit of a treat getting to our host, Dennis Stewart, again. Dennis, welcome back to the program.
1: Thank you, Sarah. Thank you.
0: Now, today we're going to be talking about traditional medicine Mm, and how it differs mm. from modern medicine.
1: Correct. Very interesting topic because what I predominantly practice is traditional medicine. I just want to explain the differences where traditional medicine fits in to the modern Western world and its role in healthcare, but also, look, at the concept of traditional medicine being derived from folk medicine.
0: All of that mm. to come. Looking forward to it. It is an interesting topic. Before we do that, though, Natalie, you've called in from Katara. Welcome. You've got a question for Dennis.
2: Yeah, I do. Um, recently, I had two what I believe to be gallbladder issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I had an ultrasound on and it's not showing stones, but sludge yes. in my gallbladder. Yes. And I'm wondering if there's a way of um, flushing that sludge or supporting the gallbladder at all.
1: Okay, so your, your, your doctor or specialist at this stage is not considering um, taking the gallbladder away? The, the, no. uh, yeah, that's, that's good, that's good. What you're talking about is, is a, a sludged uh, gallbladder, and in our system of medicine... Uh, we claim that that can be helped, and uh, let let me first of all ask Natalie: Are you symptomatic? Are you exper- experiencing any discomfort presently, or has the acute symptoms dissipated?
2: They're dissipated,
1: yeah. Okay, and you, you've only ever had an episode once. Twice. Twice over there what was, over what period of time?
2: A, a week. Yes, uh, and it was a week that I had COVID as well.
1: Oh, okay. Okay. So
2: I'm not sure, if it's related or if it was. I wasn't eating okay. a lot. Okay, um, and I had just two separate um, episodes. They lasted probably five to six hours each.
1: Yes. Okay. Look, um, there are a couple of herbs that might be very useful for addressing this. Um, the the main, or one of the main herbs, if not the main herb, that would be used to address gallbladder inflammation per se, whether it be inflammatory or sludge, or even sometimes very small gallstones, uh, is an American herb called barberry, B-A-R-B-E-R-R-Y. Barberry, botanically botanically known as Berberus vulgaris. Now, in in our literature, the British Herbal Pharmacopeia, and in the literature pertaining to Western medicine, that has a long history of benefit and recommendation. Its chemistry is well known, and uh, it has long been used I would see it as being potentially very valuable, but usually barberry is prescribed by a practising herbalist who would compound it also with supportive herbs such as dandelion yeah. and globe artichoke okay. and yeah. St. Mary's thistle. Now, that is, yeah. a, that, that is a formula yeah. that most Western herbalists would be familiar with, and the taking of that should lead to, uh, how how can I call it, a quieter gallbladder and Uh and maybe over time show some resolution of the build-up of sludge in the gallbladder. These uh, remedies promote better flow of bile uh, from the gallbladder. So I would work along those lines. But uh, a very old uh, tradition associated with gallbladder problems uh, at large uh, emphasises the role of olive oil and lemon juice. Now, that might sound rather quaint, but one of England's most important herbalists has passed on now, Frank Roberts, uh, wrote a remarkable book on the digestive tract, and uh, he had great confidence in encouraging people to incorporate regularly into their diet copious amounts of olive oil and lemon juice. Now, that is to be taken over a period of time. Uh, It's not seen to be an unpleasant thing. But I've always extolled the virtue of using um, um, lemon juice first thing in the morning for general health practices, but the use also of olive oil in conjunction with lemon juice should also promote better drainage of the gallbladder and assist the formula. On the other hand, you might like to work with that first to see where that goes. It's uh, it's a very old-fashioned remedy. There would be many people in this town that would swear by the virtue of that combination of olive oil and lemon juice, regularly taken as part of their daily routine.
2: Would you emulsify it and have it together?
1: Look, you can do that. Um, I remember um, I treated a lady from oh, Gosford Hospital. Probably she was actually a, a ward sister there. This is going back nearly forty years ago, and uh, that's exactly what she did. And uh, um, the way in which that cleared that lady's gallbladder was little less than startling, and it startled her, and it resolved uh, the episodes that she had been regularly getting of, of gallbladder distress, college cystitis we call it.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's the that diagnosis that yeah. I was giving you.
1: Yeah. yeah. Look, no, it sounds, I- uh, I'd, give, I'd give that a go. Uh, the good thing about it is these things are not expensive. They're foods. So try to work along that line. And the fallback position, a professional herbalist would think about prescribing a compound that I've given to you if it was necessary.
0: And thank you so much for the call, Natalie. The best of luck. 49216216 is the number. Now, Dennis, we wanted to chat today about Mm, traditional mm, medicine mm. and how that differs from modern or scientific medicine.
1: Well, I think the basic difference is this, that traditional medicine, and by that we mean uh, medicine as practised in traditional cultures. Every society uh, has a traditional system of medicine. It might interest listeners to know that Western society, Um, Western medicine or Western medicine today um, has a lot to do with folk medicine that has come through the ages, even in Western society. But in uh, more traditional cultures, uh, their systems of medicine are still very traditionally based and are not so much oriented towards Western medical practices. Uh, Traditional medicine, Uh, is based on what we might call folk medicine. Right. Uh, The two terms are very, very closely used, and the two terms imply the idea that this is a system of medicine that has developed in a culture that has been observed as being beneficial by the people of that society or culture. Hence, it has become known as folk medicine, traditional medicine, folk medicine, The medicine based on experience over many hundreds of years, sometimes thousands of years, a system of medicine that sometimes doesn't yield itself to scientific analysis, but yields itself to a long, long history of benefit, which is usually associated with effectiveness and safety. So my system of medicine is predominantly a traditional system of medicine based on the Anglo-American system of uh, folk medicine, if you like, the the uh, folk medicine of Western Europe and the folk medicine of the Red Indian culture of North America. Um, so uh, the, the system is not as much oriented towards uh, pharmaceutical techniques, etc. It is still a very simple system. The preparations we tend to use today based on traditional Western medicine tend to be more sophisticated in their form and their preparation, but they all go back to a long tradition of what's called folk medicine, the medicine of the ages, used by people seen to be effective, and in recent times in the Western world particularly, being analysed and shown to have a basis uh, to the success. The traditional medicines given,
0: and we may have a look at mm. uh, some of the, the, the remedies it has mm. been useful for in, yeah. in recent times. Very soon, we'll just go back to the phones now. Welcome to the program, Peter. You're in Meriwether. What's your question for Dennis?
2: Uh, good morning. Uh, I just uh, have a, a question. I've heard it mentioned on two NURS sort of ad, advertise uh, advertisement for the pro- program. Um, about uh, some knee pain. My, my son has uh, patellar tendonitis mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, inflammation of that tendon there. Um, and you've mentioned something before about a compound or something that you can rub into that area for inflammation of the knee or something?
1: Okay. Look, uh, I have frequently encouraged listeners to use topical preparations, liniments uh, and creams, particularly based on the European herb Arnica, and also an extract called the oleoresin of capsicum. Arnica and the oleoresin of capsicum form the basis of very many preparations in our pharmacies and health food stores. Um, There are numerous preparations. Um, If you were to go into a health food store or pharmacy and ask for a topical application or a compound uh, based on that, um, you would find that they would have Numerous members that would fit that category. Um, pain away, stiff sore and sorry. They're all, if you like, members of a bracket of remedies that incorporate those two main active principles. Arnica in conjunction with the oleo resin of capsicum. A very credible, very well understood way as to how they work. And both herbs having a long tradition also In the practice not only of uh, herbal medicine but in the in the practice of modern medicine both herbs are the basis of sophisticated modern medications particularly arnica which is the backbone of many continental or european topical applications we in my opinion have have only in recent decades become fully aware of the potential of that remarkable herb um, which is particularly useful for um, injuries associated with sporting or um, or accidents, but in conjunction with the oleoresin of capsicum, it's pretty hard to beat as a topical preparation. There's one thing to remember though, when you're using a uh, preparation like this, particularly one that contains what's called the active principle, that is the oleoresin of capsicum, it will take a number of days before the chemistry uh, set, sets itself up, before the pain uh, receptors respond to the principle of the oleo resin, which limits or hinders the transmission of, of pain. It will not occur immediately. You might get some sense of, of benefit, but about three or four days, and then it starts to kick in. When it starts to kick in, um, you'll you'll generally need to continue the momentum of that uh, until the problem is resolved.
0: I just said to Dennis off air, you turn 40 and it falls apart, and what did you say, Dennis? It
1: gets worse. <laughs>
0: worst darling oh my gosh okay let's go to sue cameron park this is health and well-being by the way welcome to the show sue a question for dennis
2: yes um my husband suffers from kidney stones uh roughly every two years he's producing them
1: yes
2: um this is about his sixth kidney stone Uh, we're just wondering his Trying to look at his diet as much as he can Mm. to try and stop producing this sort Mm. of thing happening. But is there anything
1: you could suggest? Yeah, look, I can actually, Um, um, and what I'm going to suggest might sound rather simplistic, but before coming on air today, I spent about an hour or so in my study up in the valley just refreshing myself on this. But one of the most useful herbs, and certainly one of the most uh, safest of herbs, is the herb parsley. What was that? The herb parsley. You know what uh, parsley is? Yes. Parsley. Yeah, parsley is seen as a, as a culinary remedy, but yet um, it is a very, very well-defined uh, kidney remedy with two indications in the literature for its use. And one of those is to de- is dealing with the uh, the development of kidney stones or bladder stones, where it has a long, long history of benefit and um, in, in your, and the other cases uh, where it is used also as a remedy to address recurring urinary tract infections. I've been saying a lot on the program in recent times about the kidney and particularly the, uh, the bladder and urinary tract infections, and we've looked at quite a few remedies that address uh, particularly infection and recurring infections, trying to uh, encourage people to see that uh, you, we can do something to help the body fight the recurrence of uh, infections. And I mentioned many remedies that have a very safe and potential role to play there. I haven't mentioned uh, parsley a lot, but uh, I was intent on mentioning it today for two reasons. One of them was that a clinical ongoing, regular use of parsley, and I'll give you the way of doing it in, in a moment, can lead to a reduction Um, in urinary tract infections and also um, it is an undiscovered herb uh, for men who are suffering the early stages of prostate enlargement where it has a reputation of use uh, when used regularly as ongoingly for helping the condition uh, stabilize and lessen some of the symptoms of that condition. In your husband's case, I would be suggesting that uh, you preferably get hold of uh, dried parsley and that would be uh, able to be purchased probably even from the supermarket, believe it or not. Um, And I know this is getting really way back to folk medicine, but folk medicine is my medicine. And in the literature, they talk about using five to six grams of dried parsley a day, particularly converted into what we would call an infusion. Now, what does this mean? This means that you would get the dried parsley, uh, either from your health food store or supermarket, and you would take a heaped teaspoonful, and that's about five to six grams. Right. You would pour boiling water onto that uh, just as you're making a strong cup of coffee. What you can do, if you like, is reduce the five or six grams down to about two and a half to three grams, and make uh, two lots of the infusion across the day, or you can make one batch and take that over the day, but five to six grams of the dried herb, convert it into a water-based preparation, that is an infusion where you might pour uh, probably 500 mils or more of water onto the herb, boiling water, let it stand, Uh, and stir it uh, reasonably frequently to make sure the whole of the herb is being exposed to the solvent. Let it stand, um, let it cool, and then over the day, over the day, drink that infusion so that you're getting the benefit of five to six grams of dried parsley. Right. Uh, That is a a very safe... Parsley's a food, for goodness sake, Uh, and it might intrigue uh, you to know that in, in, in older in older times and uh, uh, when people didn't have a lot of money and didn't have uh, a lot of access to medicine and when a lot was not uh, not much was known about some of the conditions that uh, affected the kidney and the, and the prostate gland that people necessarily grew uh, parsley around their household and that was not just to use as as a culinary herb but the growing of it around the household was uh, a, a practice that was carried out so that in in males particularly, um, they would take a bit of the parsley and, and eat it on their way to work, so to speak, and a bit more when they came home. It was well known that it was a good herb for men, in inverted commas, and that usually related to its benefit in prostate enlargement, but the same herb as a broad-spectrum action also, in um, kidney stones, bladder stones, re- regardless of where they are. So, that is one recommendation that I could make that's not going to cost you anything. It might be a little bit laborious doing it, but I'm sure if your husband were to do that, there's a good chance of his breaking away from these episodes. Now, finally, I will intrigue you by saying that uh, at a time when Australia is becoming more and more uh, aware of our Southeast Asian uh, friends, our, the, the populations, the country, their traditions, we're also learning a lot about the traditional medicines of Southeast Asia. Now, it might intrigue you to know that probably, probably uh, the most important uh, herb of Southeast Asia, um, yes, generally the most important herb of Southeast Asia, I'm putting myself out on a limb there, but it is known as Java kidney tea. Java kidney tea. Now, um, its botanical name is Orthosiphon staminaeus, not that you need to know that, (laughs) but it is well documented, interestingly, in European literature because what happened there, when the Dutch uh, were the the ruling powers, if you like, of of Indonesia and when the British were the ruling powers of, of Malaya, they noticed that this herb, Java kidney tea, was used popularly by the population to treat many conditions relating to the kidney, kidney stones, uh, kidney problems per se, Uh, and it became so popular that the name was given to it by the Europeans as Java Kidney Tea. The Dutch were so impressed with it that they took it back to Europe and it's a herb now that occurs in the Dutch pharmacopoeia ortho siphon we call it java kidney tea it's very effective i would probably be one of the few herbalists in australia that is using the herb and i'm using it very successfully there are two herbs that if i were in your husband's situation i would happily take they're inexpensive very safe and both of them particularly java kidney tea have a profound and well-established reputation.
0: Thank you, Sue. Let's go to Nancy now. Nancy, thank you for waiting. You're in Morpeth. Your question for Dennis.
2: My question is, what would be a good diuretic, please, for um, uh, fluid retention of the hands, uh, swelling of the hands and the feet?
1: Nancy, the first question I have to ask you there is, have you had your uh, fluid retention investigated by your GP? Yes. Okay, and
2: it's nothing to do with kidneys or anything like that. It's got
1: nothing to do with the kidneys, <laughs> nothing to do with your heart. Are you Are you no. taking very much prescription medication?
2: Yes, um, only one, and it has been prescribed just a week ago.
1: Uh, that's a yes. diuretic.
2: No, it's not. It's it's a it's, it's a steroid, like it's for a, uh, like prednisone.
1: Okay, um, have you been on a steroid for very long?
2: No, just a week.
1: Okay. Because sometimes steroids could cause a little bit of puffiness, so to speak. Uh, Nancy, one of the safest and yet best documented uh, herbal diuretics is the dandelion. Now, keep in your mind, there are two aspects of dandelion. There is the root and there is the leaf of the dandelion. Now, both of them share similar characteristics. But it is the dandelion leaf which has the best-defined diuretic action. The English herbalist Simon Mills, in his book The Dictionary of Modern Herbalism, Mills is probably the best-known uh, herbalist and, and academic I- herbalist in, in the Western world, and his literature I've used for all my uh, teaching career. And in that book, there is a good differentiation between the leaf and the root, If you were to uh, seek it out, you would probably have to go to either a compounding pharmacist, a naturopath, a good health food store that might stock. Ideally, let me emphasise, ideally, the leaf of dandelion. Okay,
2: and you can just have that as many times as you like. Well,
1: remember, dandelion is um, is a very, very useful herb, and in 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 many countries it's used. As a food, it's a it's a bitter herb and a bitter food, and as such, is used in continental menus frequently because of that. So it's a very safe remedy. Um, Remember that dandelion has had a a reputation for um, addressing uh, fluid retention. Uh, There was a French, well-known Frenchman, Jean Valnet, who's written some remarkable words. He said about dandelion that it rinses the renal filters and rings the hepatic sponge. In other words, he <laughs> says, it's remarkable for its effect on the kidneys, but it's also butte also for the liver. One of my favourite herbs, dandelion, we would be a lot healthier if we had a lot more dandelion of either form in our diet. And fortunately, from our supermarkets and health food stores, we can get plenty of good dandelion preparations that can be converted into a tea or an infusion.
0: Uh, now, I believe we have uh, Lorraine from Toronto on the line and some questions around conjunctivitis. Lorraine?
2: Oh, hi. How are you today?
1: I'm well, Lorraine.
2: Good. Now, a bit of background information. This is from on behalf of my husband. He has macular degeneration. Yes. And he's vision impaired. He's actually classed as legally blind. Yes. But this year... We've had four lots of conjunctivitis. We'd go to the chemist and get the sig drops and ointment and put yes. them in. We yes. mentioned it to the doctor and he just sort of said, yeah, do the Chlorzeg and maybe get checked out by the optometrist. But yes. I don't know if there's anything we could help to stop the recurrence of this conjunctivitis.
1: Uh, that's intriguing. With with anything to do with the eye, uh, one has to be rather cautious and um, anything I say, therefore, um, is, is very cautiously said, put it that way. Um, what I would be seeking to do, look at it from this perspective, that it is an infection. Uh, and as such, what is the approach that a herbal medicine practitioner would use? The first thing that we would uh, use would be what might be called infection-fighting herbs, the most common one that is used is the herb Echinacea and yep. it, it is usually taken in conjunction with its companion remedy, also from North America, known as Golden Seal. So I would, yep. I, as an oral medication, and this is the way I would be treating it, it's the recurrent factor of it, uh, treating it topically um, is okay, but I would be so, looking at the problem here and that is it keeps coming back So I would be saying to myself, what is there that might lessen this tendency? The taking of echinacea and golden seal might be useful uh, and they're available in capsules or any form from your health food store or pharmacy. The other thing I would say, however, is that I'm a great fan of bioflavonoids. Bioflavonoids are very safe and bioflavonoids also have a broad spectrum action when taken as oral medication particularly to address recurrent infections or inflammatory conditions, inflammatory yep. conditions. So a bioflavonoid, which is taken in conjunction usually with vitamin C, would be a useful companion remedy to the oral herbs that I've recommended. Um, I would give that a go as a starting base. Um, in olden times, when when I say olden times, <laughs> that, that applies to me, <laughs> but um, in, in um, some... Uh, practices of Western herbal medicine, the herb eyebright, has been used as the basis uh, for producing a sterile uh, eye wash. But that would have to be uh, discussed with your optometrist, optometrist or your ophthalmologist. But Eyebrite has been popularly used in Western herbal medicine uh, to address recurring infections. But obviously when anything you're using is put into the eye, it has to be sterile and it has to be medically approved. So I throw okay. that in as something that you might like to discuss. But try the oral medication first as a means of breaking into the recurrence of the condition. So
2: echinacea golden seal and yeah. a bioflavonoid.
1: Yeah, I would I would work with that, and I would be confident that that would do something.
2: Thank
0: you so much for the call, Lorraine. Let's go to Tony uh, Katoomba. You've got uh, a comment on teas for kidney stones, is that correct?
2: Yes. Hi, how are you? Hello, Tony. How are you? Good, good. Love, it. love the show. Thank you. Um, whenever I can get to hit listen to it, I always listen to it. Thank you. And um, I, I've suffered with kidney stones. Yes. And um, the first time I had it... Um, I knew an interesting guy by the name of Dr. Rod Laura. And, um, um, I'd gotten this rooibos tea a week beforehand. Yes. I've had it hot. And, um, his opinion was that I passed a kidney stone because the rooibos tea took all the fat out of around the kidney stones in my kidney.
1: Okay. And,
2: um, so my question is, I'm, I'm just curious, wondering if that was something to do with it. Cause it was very coincidental. And, um, what is rooibos
1: tea good for? <laughs> uh, I don't know a lot about rooibos tea. I, I know people that, that drink it uh, as a pleasant herbal tea. Uh, I'm not fully aware, however, of its, uh, of its clinical or um, medicinal use. Um, that's not to say that it hasn't got one. It obviously has got one, um, but it's not a herb that I have studied. Um, I, if, if it coincided with your resolution... Of, of the kidney stone, you'd have to say that it was effective in it. So um, I would I would accept that it must have some use there. But what I would I come back to the point that uh, if if I were dealing with the with the situation of particularly recurrent kidney stones or kidney stones that were defying uh, resolution uh, medically, I would fall back on those two that I mentioned today and particularly with reference to Java kidney tea. And by the way, you'll find that'll become more and more used in this country, largely as a result of my teaching and my usage. Uh, presently, I think I'm the only one uh, who's using the herb, um, but it will become much more popular. And one of the benefits of the herb is that it is thought that it has a mild di- dilatory effect on the, uh, on the urethra, uh, which uh, assists also in the passage of the calculi. I would think that those two herbs, parsley and Java kidney tea, would be what I would be thinking of uh, of using if I had a stubborn recurrent condition. Keep in, keep in mind there, as, a, as a, an aside to mention to listeners, fascinating aside, The uh, probably the most well-known herb in the world, for addressing kidney stones and promoting their their painless or relatively painless passage is a herb called Ami Visnaga, a Ami Visnaga is also known as Kella, K-H-E-L-L-A. It, it contains a chemical constituent in it called Kellen. Now, this herb uh, made its reputation in the days of the pharaohs. Now, you might say, how do you know? We know it because the Nile Valley is renowned for the way in which it promotes the development of kidney stones. And when the pharaoh's tombs were opened, interestingly, seeds of Ami Visnaga were found in the pharaoh's tomb, keeping in mind that they believed that they would go uh, to another world and they would take with them those things that were found helpful. And army Visnaga... Was so well known that the pharaohs took it with them to the other side, so to speak. Wow! And we found in in our days that it is effective. I I actually used it as a young practitioner in this town because the same herb is brilliant for dealing with uh, infantile uh, asthma. Unfortunately, unfortunately, the herb was equated with one of its chemicals, and unfortunately, we're not allowed to use it now. But uh, an individual wow. would be able to source. Army Visnaga, popularly used still in Middle Eastern countries for the addressing of this particular problem.
0: Wow. There you go, I'm, Tony. That was awesome. I'm,
2: after all these years, I'm making an appointment coming and seeing you.
1: <laughs> you need to hurry.
0: Oh, you've got to tell us something, Dennis. Don't don't you get us all worried here now. Look, thank you very much for the call, Tony. We uh, certainly appreciate it. Now, Dennis, we've only got, you know, a, yeah. a, a smidge left before we do okay. need to go, but we were talking about uh, folk medicine. Can you give some examples, or maybe just one, because we are running out of time, where it has made a huge difference? Okay. You did mention parsley before.
1: I mentioned parsley, but probably the the herb, above all herbs, in the Western world that has altered the practice even of modern medicine is the foxglove, Digitalis. Digitalis purpurea, which is still used in sophisticated forms for the treatment of what we call congestive cardiac failure. That herb was found by Dr. William Withering, who noticed that people in Shropshire, in England, used it for fluid retention. The herb is not exactly a fluid a herb for fluid retention, but it was taken by people whose fluid retention was associated... With heart failure. In, in the 1700s, Dr. William Withering brought back and discovered what made the herb work. It was probably the greatest medical discovery of the time. It was based on the herb foxglove which we plant in our gardens.
0: Wow, there you go. Well, Dennis, I have no doubt you might uh, cover this topic a little bit more in the coming weeks because that is absolutely fascinating. But we are out of time. Thank you for all of your calls. Dennis, thank you. It is Health Naturally on 2NURFM.